The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Hello and welcome along to the Business Chat for the month and uh, today we're joined by uh, a new person in the Callaghan team helping to tell the stories of New Zealand businesses, Karen Shearer. G'day, welcome welcome along. Thank you for having me. And joined by Maria Slade, who's stepped um, out of the Callaghan role and into <laughs> business editor at the spin-off. Welcome. Hello. Yeah, nice to see you in, in here in this role. Um, hey, so uh, looking through some of the big stories of the month and a few of the things that we've covered through the podcast, I think like the, the, the big kind of topical news is we're 125 years since uh, being a pioneering country with women's suffrage. But looking around business, after it did look like we were doing quite well with um, Teresa Gatting and other very high-profile kind of women in leadership roles, we've gone right backwards to having one of the top NZX50 uh, leaders being a woman and a, a very small percent, something like 12 13% of directors uh, being women. Are there signs of hope? What's, what's going on? Some days you feel like banging your head against a brick wall. <laughs> I think it was interesting that the Governor-General, Patsy, Dame Patsy Reddy, who's a lawyer, came out and spoke at the Women of Influence Awards the other night and said that in her generation they put up with a lot of egregious behaviour, that, that is her word, but they thought that the way to deal with it was to just put their heads down and work hard and eventually things would change. She said, we now know we were wrong, or, or at the very least too optimistic. And disruption is the only way it's going to happen. And I think that's that's what's happening with the Me Too movement. Mm. Women are just tired of having to put up with that kind of bad behaviour at whatever end of the scale it is. You know, the the, the rude comments, the at, the at one end, the sort of pornography on the wall of the workshop at the other end kind of thing, that sort of thing. Women for too long, I think, have, have sort of thought, oh, well, you know, boys will be boys. We're just going to have to ignore it or make a joke about it or get past it. Now I think the, 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 it's swung right round and people are saying, no, that's actually bad behaviour. Actually, that's not acceptable and um, we need to push forward. And it's not necessarily being uh, lessons learned quickly if you look at prominent law firms that are um, finding themselves back in trouble for similar issues to previous high-profile troubles. 
Yeah, but isn't it fantastic that actually women now feel empowered and safe enough now to, to actually speak out against this? I mean, they don't feel that, they're, that the power imbalance is, is so bad that they have to put up with it. I mean, I think it's amazing now that women actually, you know, feel that they can expose this. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of men are feeling a lot more careful about, about what they do. I mean, this is a fairly recent development. I think it's going to have massive implications for, for all kinds of workplaces. And, and there are a lot of men for the uh, the point to get through to. I loved Helen Clark's point, um, uh, her, her paraphrase and that, that wonderful quote, that there isn't so much a glass ceiling as just a thick layer of men, or as some people <laughs> have put it, a layer of thick men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although, I mean, I have to say, working for an uh, organisation like Callaghan, I mean, there are actually some amazingly progressive <laughs> organisations out there now. I mean, we have a phenomenal percentage of women in senior leadership. We have a woman CEO. I mean, I've just been amazed. It's one of the reasons I wanted to work there is just, just these incredible women in really senior positions. So, I mean, it really does exist. It's maybe, you know, the law firms and in, in, in some places are taking a bit to catch up, but there are actually some amazing examples out there now of, of companies, uh, big and small, that, that, that really get it. Um, and there's some, I think there's some really good lessons that are, that are being learned now too. I think we are starting, now that those women are getting in those roles, you know, they attract other women and they are, um, you know, forcing some change from within. There's this amazing company in, in Wellington called Techron um, that's um, got this fantastic CEO and uh, she recently spoke about you know her experience, and one thing she insisted to the recruiters um, was, "Don't bring me. I want a you know completely balanced um, portfolio of CVs, um, you know, gender and so on." And she said that's made just that one simple little thing has made a massive difference. Like the the proportions of women they're hiring are much higher. She's also done things like change the physical environment of of the office. That's made a massive difference. So some quite sort of simple things, um, and I think those lessons, you know, they snowball and um, word spreads, and uh, you know, we are making some progress. I think we are, and I think you can see that from the the num the percentage of women directors on on the top one hundred boards now. It, it has gone up in the time that I've been reporting on this mm. issue over the last decade or so. You know, it was sort of under ten percent, and now we're up around the twelve, thirteen, whatever it is now, depending on how you cut it. But part of that came about from the NZX's um, rule change, the you know the report or explain. So you have to report on the percentage of females at that level and explain why not if you haven't got them to a certain you know the percentage to a certain level. And so they are actively going out there and recruiting from a, a wider pool of people to try mm. and, and lift that level. But see, that was affirmative action. Otherwise, it mm. wasn't going to change. Yeah, and, and something that um, we've covered on the podcast before, talking to people like uh, Miranda Burden from uh, Global Women and the like, is this idea of a wave about to break, where uh, if you look at the senior management and senior decision-making roles in all these big NZX50 companies, there is a very positive spread of female leadership but it's just at the absolute top that there seems to be um, this 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 kind of hangover of the old way of doing business of having just men in leadership positions. And I mean, forty nine out of fifty of our top companies being men is is kind of you know it's 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 staggeringly bad. Yeah, we, it's not all about the big companies though. I mean, there's you know New Zealand is a, a country of small businesses, and and I mean at the smaller end of town. Um, this, I mean, I think there is some real progress being made. Um, you know, we're getting women engineers coming through now. I mean, the, I think the Auckland University Engineering School is aiming for something like 30% of female students by 2020. I mean, that's not far away. 
and we're getting those quite prominent women, you know, people like engineers and scientists who are, um, you know, got fairly high profiles now. And I know amongst startups, we've got a we've got a remarkably high percentage of uh, young women compared to globally. It's something like twenty five percent, whereas I think globally it's only fifteen percent. So at that you know that smaller end, that the startups and the entrepreneurs and and even even in the STEM subjects, which have always been <laughs> dreadful, really. Um, there's some the real signs of hope. I think it, maybe it is, but you know, a bit of a time issue. Yeah. And I think, too, the other thing you have to recognise in traditional New Zealand SME businesses, a lot of them are husband and wife teams. You know, farming businesses are all pretty much like that. Mm. And, you know, women have always played a very active role in, in running the family business. And that's always been the case. And, you know, a lot of those women would dispute that <laughs> they don't have that kind of role, you know, because they always have. So we have to remember that. And, and um, farming is a good place to jump into the other big story of the last couple of weeks, which are the Fonterra results. And, uh, you know, a lot has been made of the fact that this, you know, kind of um, country-supported monopoly that has a lot of kind of uh, uh, effects that the whole country hold on its behalf, such as uh, waterways um, being spoilt, uh, they're um, not being included inside emissions trading schemes as a sector, uh, you, you know, there's a huge kind of like countrywide interest in Fonterra and they've reported their first ever loss in 17 years of trading. Yes, it, it's bad. $196 million loss. It's it's not good. <laughs> and a lot of that has come about by bad management. Uh, well, in fact, most of it has, of course. There was the Danone settlement over the um, botulism scare. And then, of course, the big write-down on their investment in China, the being mate. A $405 million mm. write-down. Yes, indeed. Uh, so that's that's the reason for the loss. And, of course, it will come round again um, in this next year because they still make money. You know, they're still selling a lot of milk. So they, they will make money and it will come round. And, and they're still 30% of the world's trade in milk powder, which is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah but the, therein the, lies the problem, I think. <laughs> well, the world's biggest dairy yeah, exporter, yeah. that's correct, yeah. yeah. I mean, they are making efforts to get more value out of that raw product that they produce. Um, You know, it's all about stream returns. You know, you can have a bucket of milk, but if you just make that into milk powder, you won't make as much profit as if you turn it into butter or cheese or whatever else. And especially if, as a company and country, you've gone around and helped China and Uruguay uh, scale up their own dairy using the kind of IP and quality that we've built here. So you've brought on a couple of other very large milk powder commodity competitors. Well, yes, although New Zealand is dairied out, so uh, Fonterra has to expand. It has no choice but to go offshore in terms of expanding the farming operation because you really just can't get any more cows in this country. You can become more productive, but you can't, you know, there's not much more room for growth. And in places like China, they, they... you, you can't supply fresh milk to China because you've got to ship it from New Zealand, and how would you do that? It's just not possible. So that's another reason why they want to expand dairy farming and those kinds of places. So there are good reasons for it. But I think one of Fonterra's fundamental challenge is that it's a cooperative, and so it is owned by its farmers, and it's very difficult for it to raise capital because farmers want the most out of it as possible. And the thing that, that's sort of kind of counterintuitive that you have to remember with Fonterra is when the milk price goes up, it costs it more because it has to pay its farmers more for its raw product. 
And now with this bad year, it, it's going to be even harder for them to invest in uh, just, just things like um, coal-fired uh, uh, dairy factories. They've still got some. And, uh, you know, they get a lot of flack from environmental pressure groups about that. And ideally, they would like to convert to cleaner forms of fuel. But that costs millions and millions and millions of dollars that they just don't have. So they face a lot of challenges in terms of raising capital to, uh, you know, diversify and improve on on those kinds of fronts. And the people they're competing against, uh, Danone and um, Nestle, they are the holders of some of the world's most famous household brands. And we're not talking about kind of, you know, um, small scale brand building that they would have to... um, uh, set out on it. It really is uh, enormous scale that they're having to play at. But most businesses with a seventeen billion dollar turnover a year, they'd be able to raise a lot of capital, a lot of debt capital. But the cooperative model that actually stops them from raising debt capital. How is that? Uh, because they they just they just can't go out and borrow money like that, uh, or they can't. They have a, a small shareholder base in terms of shareholders that aren't farmers. And well, in fact, they're not even shareholders; they're unit holders mm-hmm. in the um, the Fonterra, um, the, the shareholders fund, and that's their really only way of raising external capital. And that gives shareholders uh, access to some of the profit stream from Fonterra, but it's limited. I think, I think I'm think i right in saying it's worth around about 7% of Fonterra's total uh, value. Don't quote me on that. But it's a small amount anyway. Uh, so really then they've only got their farmers. And uh, so the farmers do own shares, but you know farmers hold on to those shares. They don't flog them to investment banks and that sort of thing. Well, they can't anyway. So, so they have very limited ways of raising capital, and um, you know, really, they are. Um, there's, there's two competing forces within Fonterra. They're a farmer cooperative that's looking after the interests of their farmers, but at the same time, they're a global business out there trying to be compete with the likes of Danone, as you rightly point out. And that that's always been the tension within the business. And in, and in fact, you sort of end up with two chief executives in a way. You've and under the old regime, you had Teo Sparings who was running a global business as far as he was concerned. And then you had um, your chairman, who we used to call him the head farmer when I was down there doing some comms work for them because his interest was the farmers. He looked after the farmers. Uh, now we've got the new regime with Monaghan and Hurrell. Uh, you know, perhaps it will be different, but those those tensions remain within that organisation. And the thing, thing thing we haven't mentioned too that gets mentioned sort of time and time again is just the move to value add. I mean, I know it's been said a million times, but I mean there are enormous opportunities there globally now for for value added in the food and beverage sector and the agritech sector. I mean that sector is exploding and. And New Zealand is, is really well placed to take advantage of that. And it would really be fantastic to see Fonterra, you know, taking a bigger slice of that sector. Well, I, I mm. saw some really interesting commentary by a rural marketing um, expert called uh, St. John Craner. And he was saying that the one of the structural things that may be holding back um, useful value add is that because it's... Um, you know, it's owned by its 10,500 farmers uh, and they want the best possible return on their milk. That's also the only place that they can get the margin to invest in all the value-add products. And so he was suggesting that, um, you, you know, the model where you broke it into two businesses, a wholesale business that just tried to look after farmer interest and a retail business, uh, which had a completely different set of goals, would be the way to get past that. Because if you look at the value-add that's been happening, that they've talked about a lot, well, four hundred and five millions have gone down the tube at um, at, at being mate, and they've missed 
Sydney, they've missed A2 Milk, which they've had an opportunity to have taken a really big stake in both early on. But there's, I mean, there's a lot more sophisticated, you know, developments than than, than even that. I mean, with uh, fields like even things like robotics, um, there's, I mean, there's this awesome company in in Tauranga called Robotics Plus who've developed um, uh, these sort of kiwi fruit picking uh, robots, and they're getting they're getting massive investment. I mean, those are the kinds of, you know, moves. And then, f- I mean, in food and beverage, there's, I mean, there's amazing developments going on, and that's you know right in up Fonterra Street. Um, I mean, there are so many possibilities. I mean, the agritech wasn't even really considered a sort of a, a major sector, you know, even sort of five years ago. And, and, and now, I mean, it's just massive. And, and it, you know, it'd be really great to see them doing more work in this area. Well, there's certainly, um, I mean, there's a lot of talented people and a lot of people that care in the organisation. Uh, people love to point out that there's um, 6,000 people working at uh, inside the Fonterra organisation over 100k. And some of them would be well over 100k. And there's only 10,500 farmers. So I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot of people who could be working on some interesting stuff. There is some talented <laughs> people down there, but you know the basic challenge remains to, to split the business, as that commentator describes, might make a lot of sense. But you've got to get the farmers to agree to that, and that's your challenge. You know, I, I couldn't see it happening in the near future. And moving on to some of the other um, surprising business news, you know, having um, been through a bit of the doom and gloom in uh, constant media attention on falling business confidence as part of self-selecting surveys uh, with very low statistical um, importance uh, and in a general environment of trying to say that we're in a, in a poor economic environment in New Zealand and then this really surprising GDP figure. Yeah, I think it shows actually. It's a bit of a reality check. I think you know we do get um, a fair bit of commentary coming out of places like the states and so on. And understandably, with the you know the <laughs> anniversary of the Lehman Brothers collapse, you would you would expect that and and the, and the situation. But I mean, actually, um, I think sometimes we do tend to forget that actually things are ticking along quite nicely here. Um, I know a few of our staff were recently at Jenny Morell holds her, an annual. Uh, she's a well-known venture capitalist. Holds an annual uh, conference um, down in Queenstown for you know uh, the some of the country's most ex- exciting sort of startups and venture capitalists and so on. And I mean the mood there was I mean it was incredibly upbeat. Um, you know there's some amazing investment going on, and uh, I think you know a lot of businesses are actually doing pretty well at the moment. We tend to forget that. In the thriving ICT sector, especially. Uh, especially, yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's not, you know, the, uh, you know, people talk about the tech bubble and so on. Um, and I think Brian Gaynor wrote a, a very good column recently in the Herald, um, sort of comparing the sort of decade before the 87 crash and, and, and comparing over the last decade. And I mean, it, it doesn't compare. We're not seeing, you know, 1,000% you know, increases in share prices. It's, it's not the kind of bubble that, that people really do fear here anyway. Yes, it's been interesting reading some of the coverage uh, following the anniversary of the, the GFC, the global financial crisis, you know, 10 years since the Lehman collapse, which marked the sort of official start, if you like, although the commentators pointed out it was all happening for a good year or two before we reached that stage. And it, a lot of the commentators are saying, well, have we learned? And it is... <laughs> it we is never quite, learn. <laughs> well, that's kind of what they were saying, that yes, we have learned. That, you know, there are tighter restrictions on banks. And, I mean, our banks were, weren't that bad uh, and, and they're in an even better position now. Uh, but overseas in America and so forth, well, you, you'd have to wonder. Yeah, but, yeah. and, and um, margin trading, collateralised debt has gone from being subprime um, 
mortgage loans to being this incredible grey area with um, leverage trading on, um, on, on you, you know, bets of future movements of the value of assets rather than the assets themselves. And there's a quadrillion dollars rolling around <laughs> in there. So there's this enormous, there's, there's a far larger problem than the problem that brought about the last subprime mortgage-led uh, crisis evolving that's being totally ignored at the moment. Yes, well, I think, as, as various commentators have pointed out, bubbles are human nature. Mm. It, you know, since the, the great tulip bubble of the 1700s in, in the Netherlands, where people were paying the price of a house for, for tulip bulbs. So, it, yeah, it, it will happen again. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but, yeah, hopefully just not quite, quite with the ferocity of, of the GFC. And I have to say, as somebody who probably spent most of my career um, claiming that you know that the housing market is about to crash and have been proven wrong time and time and time again. <laughs> I think, I think um, we too tend to get a little bit over dramatic about the. I think it's you know what wonderful that you know we have had more GDP growth in New Zealand than was expected, and that probably is the sign of you know thriving tourism and and some really great export led um, tech businesses and the like. But you know if you do look at the um, the, the fundamentals. Uh, the the US has is too much debt. They're starting a trade war with the second biggest kind of economic actor in the world, and uh, New, New Zealand has the most overpriced housing to um, income levels in the world. And you can't kind of look forward very far and go, well, everything looks good here. <laughs> things are <laughs> things not, have not a positive Brexit. ending. Yeah, but but if you yeah. look at our debt levels compared to you know some other countries' debt mm. levels, for example, um, it's not that bad. You know, relatively speaking, um, I don't think we're in as horrific shape as some people like to think we are. Oh, I'll take I'll take I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take any positivity into the day. Uh, and, um, and and jumping out to Apple, so uh, big news with their. Um, with their uh, announcements that always gather a lot of media coverage of their new product lines. Uh, But hidden in in there um, was something that people were maybe expecting to see, which was wireless charging, which hasn't been announced yet, but it's now happening here. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know how many people actually realise there's a fantastic story behind the whole um, wireless charging phenomenon. There's actually a a group of uh, professors at Auckland University who are the world's leading experts in in wireless charging. They started something called uh, inductive power transfer um, many years ago, and that actually became sort of the world standard for uh, for wireless um, power. And out of that, um, some of their students grew a little company called uh, Power by Proxy, and uh, they developed a way to charge. Uh, they embed in batteries a, a, a way that um, uh, you can you can wirelessly charge uh, appliances and so on. Uh, it's an amazing little company, um, and they got I think is a bit of publicity when they got bought by Apple um, about a year ago. I think the, the, there was talk at the time that the price might be more than a hundred million or so. Um, but it's, I mean, it's an amazing success story, and I think you know there's absolutely no doubt that in the future, uh, wireless power is going to be probably the way we, you know, it's, it's, just got, it's going to become the standard, right? Yeah, I mean, it's got. I'm holding up here a, a series of wires coming out of my MacBook because you now need not only um, a wire into the side of your Mac, but also middleware in between other wires to go to other devices. It has to be coming soon. I mean, no, a company that prides itself on design cannot 
be happy at all with this. Bring it on. It's, uh, you know, it, it is getting crazy, as you say, the number of wires you need these days to just simply operate your day-to-day life. And, and, and that, that, yeah. that centre of innovation and the work that they're doing, I've heard rumours that Auckland is now kind of the global centre of Apple's uh, wireless charging process. Well, Power by Proxy has. They've set up a new office in Auckland. I mean, Apple are, you know, notoriously secretive about exactly, you know, what they do and how they do it for understandable reasons. Um, so they're not obviously saying anything about quite where that's going, but they do have the, they do have this Auckland office. It's all happening there. Um, Callahan works works with Power by Proxy. We work quite closely with them. We have all all the way along, and um, you know they're hiring. They're they're creating um, many many jobs down there. Um, and it's, I mean, it's fantastic news. All very highly skilled jobs, um, and I think there's, you know, there's probably a very bright future for this. Ah, oh, that's so cool! Can't, can't mm. wait to see how that um, how that all comes to pass. Mm. And I just have to the say, did life. you realise though that IKEA is actually selling bedside tables that have charging mats um, embedded within them? This is a thing. I was astounded to read that, and I want one. <laughs> yeah, no, they they they've been using the, the IKEA yeah. uses the QI technology that that um, actually Power by Proxy was part. You know, that part helped set the standard. That's a global standard at the moment. But I think it'll move a you know a long way past that yet. Yeah, and for yeah. anyone not yeah. in the Apple universe who's had wireless charging for years and is laughing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, which, yeah, which um, Power by Proxy like, did play a role in the general global standard that other manufacturers have been using for years. Yeah, but, I mean, it's got huge, it's not just, you know, charging a cell phone and so on. I mean, it's got huge industrial applications. I mean, it, this really is a revolution in the way we charge, you know, uh, electricity full stop. And I, I think in, you know, 50 years' time, uh, I think we'll be amazed at where this is going. Cool. And a couple of um, couple of pod things this month in the, the um, Together Journal uh, story um, actually broke some news. Yes, that's right. Um, Together Journal, as far as we can work out, had the first uh, same-sex union on the cover. Uh, other wedding magazines have you know run stories about same-sex marriages, but to have it on the cover is, is a new thing. And so uh, New Zealand's Together Journal, which is a very interesting publishing project, when we all think that uh, print media is dying, Together Journal has managed to launch this business specialising in pictures of, of the sort of more rustic style of weddings and it, it has just taken off and they and they seem to be doing well. And yes, they, they broke this ground, which is kind of interesting. I, yeah, it was, I, it's kind of interesting that it's ground to break in well, one sense, but then exactly. also Australia, the legislation is so fresh. Yes, well, there was, there's a wedding magazine over there called White that's uh, come in for controversy for apparently refusing to run stories about same-sex weddings. So they're a bit behind us, I think, across the Tasman. Yeah, <laughs> wow. In a lot of places, actually. <laughs> it's, it's good to remind yourself, isn't it, just how progressive we actually are here. I, I, love, I love the fact uh, it's called White. It doesn't uh, sound very, um, <laughs> very good for the future. And the story of Greta's um, business success at Together Journal is quite amazing too, in that you know, starting a print media title in a declining environment and within a year of launch being in um, more than 200 uh, department stores throughout America, uh, extraordinary success and, you know, really amazing execution. But, bo- I mean, boy, she would be the ideal candidate, wouldn't she? I mean, I was just amazed. I mean, her set of skills was a fairly unique set, I think, being so strong and, you know, the creative side of things, plus that fantastic IT background. And the thing I thought was amazing about her is, you know, as far as an entrepreneur goes, I mean, she just did every, I mean, it sounds to me like she just did everything right, everything you should do. You know, she she went to the Ice House, she got a great mentor, she's social media friendly, she's got this gift of, you know, user-generated content. Um, 
you know, the, there's another, you know, sort of key lesson that, that, you know, all entrepreneurs, you know, say yes and then make it happen. I mean, she just seems to have done everything. Um, she's either had very good advice or she's very lucky or both. She, she's, <laughs> she's very bright, a great executor. And yeah. I, I love this thing that she um, you know, identified somewhere where she gets user-generated content. But it's like the most expensive thing most people do in their lives outside of buying an asset. Uh, and so they've spent, you know, 30K, you know, maybe a lot upwards getting these photos. And then the magazine gets to run them. Great. Yeah, it's really smart. It's a great model. It's a very, it reminded me a little bit of the, the Trends magazine, you know, which was a, started off, you know, many years ago on a, on a kind of a similar model and has also done, you know, incredibly well and really well globally as well. And um, and another another chat that I re- really enjoyed this month was with um, Lisa Tauma, who was the producer at uh, Fresh TV and Coconut, and just really fascinating to kind of chat through um, telling Pacifica centric stories in mainstream media when it's always been popped into kind of funny around the edges um, programming slots and had to then be content for Pacifica community, but not to alienate any person who happened to be watching TV at 10 o'clock in the morning. And so walking that kind of compromised line and then through the internet being able to, and, and through um, you know brave programming decisions or, or more reasonable programming decisions, being able to move into telling like stories um, in the voice of and for the communities. It's such a cool story. I thought she was s- smart to identify the, the niche, for want of a better way of describing it, because... because like 12, yeah, 12% of the country. It's quite a large niche. But but that's it. it no one was um, servicing mm. that, that population, and uh, that is... That is where the growth in our population is. <laughs> it's um, you know, Pacifica groups are a very young population, and so there's a lot of growth there. And so, as a business owner, why would you not want to be targeting uh, that kind of community? So, from that point of view, I thought she was very smart. I wondered though what her actual business model is in terms of making money. I mean, she's getting New Zealand on air funding, great, but yeah, she didn't sort of expand on exactly how she's making her money. Yeah, the, the coconut is um, it's fantastic in that it isn't all filled with advertisements, uh, which is like the online portal where they post uh, a bunch of stories and make streams of content um, particularly for. And yeah, so I, I think there is a, a, a New Zealand on air component there. But you know, when you're talking about kind of twelve percent of the population, you can and, really and, it's, and it's going to be it's going to be twenty uh, percent by twenty thirty eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. and, and you could go you could go a long time of picking up the paper and turning on the news and not know that Auckland was the biggest Pacifica city in the yeah. world. So, yeah, it, it's it's a good thing I think for the NZ on air to be working in. And do you know what? I, do you know what I really loved about her? I loved her. It's not particularly original, but I still loved it. Her definition of success. I love the way she said, you know, success is, you know, speaking of money, it's not doing what your parents want. It's doing what makes you happy. I thought that was that was just like a mantra for kind of entrepreneurs. Really, I thought that was just that was so cool. That's so magic. Yeah, and uh, and, and, yeah. Let's let's leave it on that lovely note. So thank you so much, Karen Shearer from Callahan Innovation and Maria Slade from the Spinner. Thank you. Thank Thank you you to Alice Weaver-Dell for producing. And thank you very much for having us on the Business Chat. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by Spark Lab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. 
And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.